take that Bible this morning and look to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, as we return to the exposition of God's Word, it always uh, astounds me that we have a God who talks, a God who speaks, a God who reveals His will to us. It was in the book of Deuteronomy that Moses said, what other nation has a God that would speak to them in the way that Yahweh has revealed Himself to that nation and to us? And I still feel that way. It is a wondrous miracle that our God speaks to us, communicates to us, and He doesn't do that in in bizarre ways, as some would say. He reveals Himself to us in His Word. We talk to Him when we pray, and then He speaks to us through His Word. Let me read John 8, verse 12 down through 20. And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your Father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. It's a marvelous, marvelous text. And what's amazing about the placement of this in John 12, it comes right after the display of God's grace extended to the woman who was caught in adultery. Adultery, you remember that, in 753 down through 811. And so how fitting after that account where he gives her grace that he declares now that he is the light of the world. He is the light of life. What's fascinating as you walk through John is that not everyone believes that grace. Not everyone believes that statement that he is the light of the world. If you will, glance down in your Bible in John 8, 21. He he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin where I am going. You cannot come. In other words, not all believe. Some will believe, but those who hear him in that day and in our day, if they don't trust him, they will die in their sin. And there's such earnestness in that statement. If you will, look at 8.24 of John. Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three times right there in 8.21 and 8.24, Jesus told them that if they rejected him, if they did not believe in him, that they would die in their sins. 
So he declares himself that he is the light of the world. However, not all believe in the hope of Christ's death on behalf of sinners. It's true then, it's true now. Some of you have heard of William Paul Young. There seems to be much discussion on him, uh, not so much him, but on his book that he wrote. He wrote the book, The Shack. So William Young is the author of The Shack. And the book is a story of what we would call theodicy. It's an attempt to answer the question of evil and the character of God. And he does it by means of a story. And in this story, if you've not been made aware of that, the main character is grieving the brutal kidnapping of his seven-year-old daughter, his brutal kidnapping and murder of his daughter, when he receives what turns out to be a summons from God to meet him in the very shack where the man's daughter had been murdered. And if you've been following the account or saw the movie, you know that God appears to him in the form of a woman. God appears to him in the form of another one who is Jesus. And God appears to him in the form of Holy, the Holy Spirit through another person. What's fascinating today about the book, The Shack, is it has sold 20 million copies. I think the book came out in 2011, and it's probably generated, Tim Challey said, probably 20 million conversations along the way. And some read this novel as kind of a fresh experience, if you will, um, to the Christian faith, while others read it and they say this is just rank heresy. And there's many things that are said on this book, The Shack. And, you know, I could say more on it, but what I will say is this. What's super clear is the author. And what's super clear is the author's thought on the Christian faith. And it's not so clear in The Shack, but it's super clear in the release of his new non-fiction work. He released a book after The Shack, and it's called Lies We Believe About God. And in that book, he tells us, does Young, what he believes about sin, hell, salvation, and many other issues that are a direct attack to our faith. In fact, in that book, he addresses a series of 28 lies that people or evangelicals believe about God. Can I just highlight maybe a couple of them for you so that you might see where this author is purposefully intending to come from. This is chapter uh, 13. And the name of the chapter is, You Need to Get Saved. And it's very clear that the author of the shack embraces the false teaching of universalism. He teaches that everybody has been or will be saved by God. And rather than me adding my commentary, why don't you just let me quote from William Young. Here's what he said in that chapter, and this is a quote. He said, what is the gospel? He said, the good news is not that Jesus has opened the possibility of salvation and you have been invited to receive Jesus into your life. The gospel is that Jesus has already included you 
into his life, into his relationship with God the Father. The good news is that Jesus did this without your vote, and whether you believe it or not won't make any less or more, it, it make it any less or more true. Then he goes on to say, what or who saves me? Then he said, God does not wait for my choice and then save me. God has acted decisively and universally for all humankind. He writes, are you suggesting that everyone is saved? That you believe in universal salvation? He said, that is exactly what I am saying. Here's the truth. Every person who has ever been conceived was included in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. He said, when Jesus was lifted up, God dragged all human beings, he said, to himself. And there's an end of quote for you. So whatever people may say, and I see people supporting this, mu- this movie, he is a heretic to the Christian faith. He believes in the doctrine of universalism. He believes that the, the truth is, is that his death saved all, every person who has ever been conceived, which Jesus just said that I read to you, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Unless you believe, you will die in your sin. But then he has to go further, right? If you, propound, if you uh, pronounce that doctrine of universalism, then you've got to say something about hell. So here's what he said about hell. He said, I may have convinced myself or been convinced by others that I deserve to be separated by God. Such lies will bring with them a shadow in which I experience, he said, a sense of separation, feelings that seem to validate the illusion that God is not connected and in relationship with me or that God has stopped loving me or has given up on me. He said, many of us live in that illusion now. He said, I propose the possibility that hell is not separation from Jesus, but that it is the pain of resisting our salvation in Jesus while not being able to escape him who is true love, end of quote. So he just rewrote the doctrine of hell according to Jesus. And I must tell you, beloved, the absolute lack of discernment in the world in which we live, to take a truth that he says, I mean, it's amazing what he says. I mean, I could go on a lot further, but I'll, I'll tell you this. Here's also what he said. He asked the question, who originated the cross? He said, if God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in the most painful and abhorrent manner. He said, frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant uh, credibility in any sense. And he said, and rightly so, better no God at all than this one. That's the author of The Shack. He is the most popular Christian writer in our time, and he labels the biblical God a cosmic abuser to which Owen Strachan said in the Gospel Coalition blog, ancient false teaching returns. Beloved, this is the day in which we live. And and here is our Lord Jesus Christ saying, you will die in your sin. You will die in your sin. Unless you believe, you will die in your sins. 
And one of the reasons that he's so most earnest in communicating that, because it's right prior to that, as we step into our passage, that he declares that he is the light of the world. In fact, the setting of this passage in 12 is found in verse 20. If you look down there, do you remember a couple weeks back, he spoke these words in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, his hour had not yet come. We believe that the Feast of Tabernacles had just finished. Because if you glance back in chapter 7, in verse 53, it says, they each went to his own house. So the feast maybe had just finished He stepped back into the temple, though some had went home, and he was teaching there in the treasury. The treasury was the court of women. The treasury was the place, if you can imagine this room, where there would be 13 trumpet-like receptacles that were put on the wall. People would come into the court of women, and this was where they could give, and they could give to various things that were taking place in the life and the nation of Israel, and these different trumpets represented different offerings, and they would come in, and there he is teaching in that court of women. It's probably the most populated place in the temple, and he's giving this discourse on the light of the world. Now, you remember that he had just finished the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And there were two major rituals that the nation of Israel participated in. They had a water ritual where the priest would take a kind of a golden pitcher of water and he would take it down to the pool of Siloam. He would put that pitcher into the pool. He would fill that golden pitcher up. He would come back, come through the water gate into Jerusalem. He would then therefore go into the temple. He would come into the temple at the base of the altar and he would pour that water into the altar. And it was, you say, what were they doing by this water ritual? Well, you remember, they were remembering and celebrating God giving them water for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. Remember the time where he brought the water out of the rock. And so they had these celebrations and they were remembering God, remembering what God did. And the water ritual was one of them. And I think it was at the very time that that water ritual that was going on, look in John chapter 7, in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow, it says, rivers of living water. And so there Jesus pronounces that he is that living water. That the one who comes to him will, out of his own heart, will flow the rivers of living water. And so all that that symbol and that ritual remembered, if you will, was fulfilled in the person of Christ. Just as when they gave out the bread in the Old Testament and Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And then now in this ritual with the lights, do you remember? They had that second ritual, the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the Festival of Lights. And if you can picture that, and that took place in the court of women. That's why I think that that's key. They would put up these candelabras. I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. One of my kids said, Dad, what's a candelabra? It's a, it's a big lamp, if you will. 
It's a big lamp stand, if you will. In fact, in Jewish writing, these lamps were about 75 feet high. So if you can almost imagine the full length of a basketball court, and they had four of these candelabras, four of these lamps that would go high in the air, and it would rise up, and then extending out of this stand would be a number of branches and arms where all these candles were lit, and they called this the Festival of Light. They, in fact, they said there was not a home in all of Jerusalem that would not in some way see this light, that would be affected by this light. And it was a wonderful celebration. And there was singing and there was dancing. And then there was the reciting of psalms and so forth. You say, well, what were they doing? Well, they weren't celebrating the water. That was the water ritual. They're celebrating the light. They're celebrating for 40 years where God appeared to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That cloud by day, fire by night was a picture of the presence of God. It was a picture of the protection of God. Do you remember when the Egyptians tried to even come into the the Israeli camp, if you will, that fire was protecting them. It was his protection. It was his presence. And so they did this festival of lights and they had these candelabras and so forth, remembering God's light to them as the nation and that light that would come down into the temple and that cloud that would fill the temple to the point where the priest could not stand to minister. And I believe it's in that very court, maybe right after the Feast of the Tabernacles, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What a stunning statement. I am the light of the world. So massively important is that text. Well, how can we understand this text? What, what, what do we need to see in this text? What I want to do with our time this morning is look at three exchanges. Three kind of divine, uh, just communication exchanges that reveal the identity of Jesus as the light of the world. Okay? I'm going to follow this text. There's three exchanges that show forth his identity as the light of the world, and maybe most importantly, and your response to him. This is who he is, beloved. Here's the exchanges, and I'll tell you where we're going, then I'll take you to where we need to be, and then I'll remind you where we were. The first exchange is a startling claim. It's the claim by our Lord when he says, I am the light of the world. The second exchange is the exchange of the leaders who you can see in verse 13 say you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. They challenge that. They scoff at him. And so there's a scoffing challenge. And then thirdly, from 14 down through 20, there is a straightforward comeback by our Lord. A straightforward comeback. He answers them. And he answers them quite clearly and quite emphatically. Three exchanges that reveal the person of Christ. Let's dive into those this morning. Here's the first exchange. is the startling claim. The startling claim. And we touched on it two weeks ago when Jesus in verse 12 spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. It is a bold claim. It is a startling claim. He said in John 1, 9, I am the true light, or John said, which gives light to everyone. That one was coming into the world. 
In other words, the light was coming. It was telling of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 8.12, I am the light of the world. Look over in John chapter 9 just for a moment. In John chapter 9, when he heals the man born blind, he said there in 9.5, as long as I am in the world, he said, I am the light of the world. This is a bold, startling claim by our Lord. Look over at John chapter 12. In John chapter 12, in verse 35, Jesus said, walk. He said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. He said, walk while you have the lights. He said, lest the darkness overtake you. He was himself the light. Walk towards that light. Look over in 1246. He says there, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so this is a startling claim. It's a bold claim. He's claiming, if you will, to be Messiah. Of course, when he makes the statement, I am the light of the world, it is a divine disclosure of his deity. The one who says to Moses, you tell them that I am has sent you. That I am Yahweh in the Old Testament, now in the New Testament, is bound up in the person of Christ. He said and declared, I am the bread of life. Secondly, here in his second of the seven I am's, he says that I am the light of the world. In other words, there is no other light. There is no other alternative. God is the light. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. You make the equation then. Jesus is therefore God. And we looked a couple weeks ago that light is a metaphor for life. In other words, he being the light of the world is the life of the world. That only life can be experienced in Christ is the thought. It's a metaphor for life. It's a metaphor for truth. It's a metaphor for holiness. It is contrasted in the word of God to darkness. Contrasted in the word of God to misery and to death. And so he makes this bold claim, I am the light of the world. But look what's backing up that claim. This is fascinating. He said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows me. And beloved, it's a very important word in the New Testament. Here it just is the idea, whoever follows me completely. In other words, when you look at that word throughout the Gospels, there are no halfway followers of Jesus Christ. You're either for him or you're against him. There's no middle ground, if you will. That's the thought. Whoever follows me, and I want you to understand, is equivalent to he who believes in me. So when Jesus said, whoever follows me is equivalent to he who believes in me, is equivalent to he who even obeys me. So when you look at John's gospel, believing and following are synonyms. They're saying the same thing. In fact, that word follow me was used of a soldier following his commander into battle. You can see that picture. It was used, the word follower of a servant or a slave attending to his master's service. But to follow him, beloved, is to submit oneself wholly to Christ. And so he's the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness. It is to be a Christian. It is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
In fact, let me just show you a few places the word is used. We'll see it more uh, in depth as we go. But look over to John chapter 10. I want just to interpret scripture with scripture with you. And certainly maybe you've seen these passages. In John chapter 10, there in the passage of the good shepherd, Jesus said in 10.4, when he has brought... When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep, what? Follow him for they know his voice. And he says in 10.5, a stranger, they will not follow. They will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And so he's the good shepherd. We as his sheep follow him obediently completely, wholeheartedly is the thought. Look over at John 10, 27. There Jesus says, in fact, if you look back in 10, 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27 of 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, what? They follow me. They follow me. This is what a believer is. They follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes me smile sometimes when I saw the bumper sticker uh, growing up that would be pasted on the back of cars, try Jesus. Listen, when someone comes to Christ, when someone apprehends that he's the light of the world, you're not supposed to try Jesus You are to follow him where he is in control and in charge of your life. He being the master, us being the servant. He giving the command, us following in obedience. This is the nature of the gospel. The gospel comes to us and it doesn't say try Jesus. The gospel comes to you, it comes to me and it says here is the person of Christ. You must follow him. And you must remain with him. Look over at John chapter 12. John chapter 12 in verse 24. Jesus is giving these statements in 1224. Truly, truly, I say to you. He said there, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life or loses it and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. For eternal life, if anyone serves me, he must, what? Follow me. This is the testimony of the scripture. This is what Jesus said to Peter regarding the apostle John at the end of John 21. He said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? He said, you must follow me. You have these commands that come out over and over again. In other words, Christianity is not a part-time job. Christianity is not something you take or leave. Christianity is not something you try. Christianity and a disciple of Christ is a wholehearted commitment where you are following Jesus in obedience. Certainly, that doesn't mean that you or I are perfect, but it does mean that you're not serving two masters. It means that you have one master. It means that you listen to one voice. It means that you continue in your pursuit of following him. It is probably the utter contrast of those who walk an aisle, those who pray a prayer, those who stand up at Hume Lake, or those who stand up at Camp Nelson, and then you never see them again. When you come to Christ, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he bids you to come and die. 
You die to self, you die to sin, you die to your lust, you die to impure relationships. This is what it means to follow Christ. He's not asking if anybody wants to try. He said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Beloved, this is the gospel. One time a scribe came to Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. He said, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another said, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. He said in Matthew 10, 38, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So here is Jesus in the midst of this teaching in the treasury and he's teaching that he's the light of the world and the one who embraces him as the light of the world will follow him. It's a very clear command of scripture. You say, well, Pastor Scott, what do I do with so-and-so who trusted Christ? I was with them 10 years ago when they stood up or I was with them at camp when they stood up or I was... Listen, the truest proof of a believer is his or her desire to follow Christ in absolute obedience. That's what the gospel requires. In fact, Tozer said this on youth groups, and Tozer you know, wrote many years ago, but he did say this, and, and, and I just I thought, ah, it's still true. He said it is uh, not true of ours, but true, I think, in general. He said it is scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend meetings where the only attraction is God. He said one can conclude that God's professed children are bored with him and that they must be wooed to meeting wooed to meeting with a stick he called it of striped candy of religious movies games and refreshments Tozer said its victims never dream that it is not part of the teachings of Christ and the apostles he said any objection to our present golden calf of Christianity is met with the triumphant reply but we are winning them to which Tozer said winning them to what He asked to holy living. He said to despising the world's treasures, to the love for God, to total commitment for Christ. He said, of course, the answer to all of these questions is no. Beloved, listen, this is why our Lord is so serious. And this is why we take his word so seriously. He said, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me, and let me be clear, will not remain in what? Darkness. And what he means by that, it doesn't mean that we can't sin, but you will not remain in the life that you once had. You, those who follow Christ and follow the light and follow him in obedience will not remain in darkness as a lifestyle. I mean, I think the modern version today is Luke 18 of the rich young ruler. When the young ruler came and said, teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? He said, after Jesus quoted some commandments to him, uh, he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, what? Follow me. He told the rich young ruler to come follow me. And as you're coming to follow me, be willing to open your hand and give this stuff to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And I think he missed the phrase altogether. 
I mean, he was offering him a treasure. But he said the treasure is in heaven, but he couldn't part with what he was holding in his earthly hand with his earthly treasure. He didn't want to follow Christ because the text says when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Listen, beloved, let me just say this as 101 to you. This is not core discipleship. When you come to Christ, you die to self. When you come to Christ, you take up your cross and you follow him. We are not our own, beloved. We have been bought with a price. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. And listen, when you meet him as the light of the world, when you bow your knee to him, when you come to him by faith and repentance, you're never the same. Look back again at John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, there it is, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, as I just said, you're not going to live in darkness. You're not going to love darkness. In fact, look over at John 12, 46. I read it just a little bit earlier, but I want you to see it with your eyes again. He said here, I have come in 1246 into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not, what? Remain in darkness. We used to have a little saying, uh, beloved, when I work with students extensively, and it just went like this. If there's no change, there's no Jesus. Because when Jesus Christ occupies the heart and life, then you begin to change. Certainly not, you know, stunning perfection, but you are being transformed from one state of glory to the next. And as you come to the light, you follow Christ. And as you follow Christ, you can no longer remain in the darkness. In fact, look what he said in verse 12. But he will have, and I love this phrase, in 8.12, he will have the light of life. In other words, that's the light, Christ, that leads to life now and it leads to life in the world to come. It's a marvelous statement. Jesus is holding himself up. He's saying, you're celebrating the light. He said, I am the light. You're looking back and remembering God's presence. I am God with you. You're looking back and you're celebrating the pillar of fire and the pillar and the cloud by day. He said, I am that light. And if you come to me, a marvelous statement there, he says, you will have life now. You will have life in the world to come. Let me just encourage you this morning. Do you ever look at unbelievers? Do you ever look at people without Christ? My heart breaks for them. There's no joy. They're living for themselves. They can't get satisfaction in the world. And here it is. Jesus is saying, listen, I am the light. And then he says in this marvelous statement, I am the light of life. In other words, I am the light that comes to you. It's like when Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him drink when he said that. And he said, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. It's only through the person of Christ that you're going to see life because he's the one who gives it. In fact, look back in John 1, 4, just for a second, that ideal of light and life. Do you remember this in John 1, 4? In him, it says here, does John, the apostle, writing under the inspiration of Scripture, in him was life, and the life was the what? The light of men. That it's only bound up in the Lord Jesus Christ where people are going to truly know how to live. 
Look over at John chapter 11. Turn back there just for a second. In one of my favorite texts in all of the scripture. Certainly you remember this one in John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the what? Life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And so he's the bread of life. He is the one who gives thirst that causes you to thirst no more. He is the one, the bread of life, that you shall never be hungry. This is a startling claim, beloved. I am the light of the world. It is a stunning claim. I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say to you. I, I just can't believe that he spoke it to you. I just can't believe that you're holding a Bible in your lap that God communicates to you, that you don't need a dream, you don't need a vision, you don't need a voice. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And he's communicating that to you. And I would say, listen, there could be no more truth and importance in our world than this one right here. You need to share that good news with someone. Now, listen, you would think that if Jesus said, I am the light of the world, you would think if he said there, as he did in John 8, 12, that they will have the light of life, that you can get out of the darkness. You think people would come running to that light, wouldn't you? Yet some love the darkness, so I take you from the first exchange of the startling claim to the second exchange of the scoffing challenge. Look at it in verse 13. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself and your testimony is not true. They scoff at him, beloved. In other words, it's a scoffing challenge. They're mocking our Lord. In other words, they're saying, you're not true. You're not valid. You're your own witness. And it's almost, and you'll see this a little bit later in the text, they stated that the law required that two witnesses establish the fact or establish a truth, if you will. You can't say you're the light of the world. Who's backing that up for you? You're your only testimony. You're your only witness. You're not valid. And maybe they were thinking of what Jesus said. But look back. Let me just show you in John 5. We've seen this argument before. Jesus said something similar to that, and I'll explain it. But he said in 531, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And you have to qualify what he's stating there. And some people said, listen, Jesus even said that. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. In other words, there needs to be another testimony. And some people point that out and they said, even Jesus would affirm that there needs to be more testimonies. But sometimes they fail to read The next verse in John 5, because look at verse 32. Jesus said, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is what? True. So here as you come, they're making this challenge to Jesus, but the truth is, beloved, and we've seen this. I just touch on it with you. There are many who have testified about Jesus Christ. Beginning in John chapter 1, John the Baptist testified about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4, the woman at the well testified about Jesus Christ. This was her testimony in 439. When you get to John chapter 11, 27, Martha testifies to the person of Jesus Christ. When Lazarus was raised from the dead in 1217, there were people who testified to the raising of Lazarus. When you get to John 5, 36, his works testify as to who he is. The scriptures testify testify as to who he is in 539 and the father in 517 and 18 testifies as to who he is and so there's many people testifying and they challenge 
uh, him and they scoff him. And I would just say the unbelief is frightening here. And so they issue this second exchange of a scoffing challenge. But you say, did the Lord respond? Oh, yeah, he responded. And here's the third exchange. It's a straightforward comeback. His straightforward comeback. It's, it's amazing. Here is the testimony of our Lord in his comeback. Look at it in 814. He says there, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going. Okay? So he's going to give a straightforward testimony. He says it's true. And I think Jesus is saying this, if you can grasp this, and I'll explain a little bit more later. He says, even if no one else affirms my witness, he said, God is true. And John covered this argument back in chapter 5 in verses 19 through 30 and in verses 30 through through 36. I think what Jesus is saying here is the normal human laws don't apply to the Son of God. Your ideal of looking for two or three witnesses, normal rabbinic rules do not apply to me and they do not have to validate me. You say, well, why? Well, his comeback declares three reasons why his witness is authentic, okay? And each of these reasons uh, leads to a realization of his deity. The first reason that his witness is authentic is he said, my origin is true. He said, my origin is true. Look at verse 14 again. He said, for I know where I come from and where I am going. He was so clear as to who he was, so clear as to who his origin was. And what he's saying here is my testimony is valid. My witness is authentic. And it's authentic because of my origin. He says here that I know where I came from. In other words, I come from God. Track this with me. Look back at John 7 just for a moment. He has stated this before. In John chapter 7, in verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, he's looking back and he says, My teaching's not mine, but it's the one who sent me. In other words, his origin is true. He's been sent by God the Father. Look at John chapter 7. In verse 27, he, they, they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They're just making a statement. Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple in 728, you know me, I think just facetiously, you know where I come from. And then he says, but he said, I have not come uh, of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In other words, he knows that he's been sent by the Father. He says, I've not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. Look at 7, chapter 7, verse 29. Jesus said, I know him, speaking of God the Father, for I come from him and he sent me. In other words, he's here. His testimony is true. His origin is true. His witness is authentic because he comes from God. Now, beloved, at some point, you either embrace this or you don't embrace this. 
I mean, either he's from God or he's not from God, at least in human, in, in, in people's minds. But he's claiming that he's from God. In fact, look over at chapter 13 just for a moment. In John chapter 13, in verse 3, and he makes these statements all over. He said, Jesus in 13.3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and in this statement, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knows his origin. I've come from God. I'm going back to God. Look in John chapter 16 just for a moment. John chapter 16. In verse 28, he says there, I came from the Father and have come into the world. In other words, he's authentic because I know where I come from. I came from the Father into the world. Look at John chapter 17 in verse 8. He says there, for I have given them the words, he's praying, that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know, he says, in truth, that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So Jesus says, listen, I know where I come from. I know where I'm going. But, but look back here at John chapter 8 just for a second. He says to these unbelieving, scoffing leaders... In John chapter 8, on the back side of verse 14, he says, But you do not know where I come from. You do not know where I am going. In other words, I came, Jesus said, from the Father. Let, let me just put it this way and bring it together for you. There's no higher testimony than that. They're looking for a testimony to the statement, the claim, I am the light of the world. There is no higher testimony. There is no higher authority. There is no higher court. There is no greater jury. He has come from God. And you need to believe in him. He is the son of God. God the father sent God the son into this world. In fact, look back just for a moment at John chapter 5. This is so clear. John chapter 5 in verse 36 He said there, but the testimony I have, Jesus said, is greater than that of John, John the Baptist. He said, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, 537, has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And so God the Father sent the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus here says the first reason his witness is authentic. He said, my origin is true. I come from God the Father. I came from Him. I'm going back to Him. You don't know where I came from. You're not allowed to walk into this statement and tell me that my witness is not valid. It's a pretty strong argument, isn't it? I mean, he goes on the offensive here. He attacks the people that are accusing him, which is interesting because I think in our own day, we think that to really win the unbelieving community, or as Young said in that quote, the atheist would never believe in cosmic divine abuse. 
that we begin to change the message when Jesus actually said, oh no, he came right after them. He said, my origin is true. Secondly, I want you to know this. He said, the second reason his witness is authentic is my judgment is true. Look now at John 8, 15. It's fascinating. He said, what does this mean? But Jesus said, you judge according to the flesh. And then he says, I judge no one. Here when he says, you judge according to the flesh, in the language, it just means you're judging and your judgment is fallen, if you will. Your judgment is fleshy, is, is the ideal of the word. It's human. It's not spiritual. It's, it's human. And, and what Jesus is saying here is my judgment is divine. Now look at that last phrase in verse 15. He says, I judge no one. Now, what does that mean there? What do you mean that he judges no one? Does he mean that in John 3, 17, that he only came to save and not condemn? Remember, he said, I came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And certainly uh, that's true in John 3, 17. But when the Lord says here, I judge no one, it's not that our Lord is affirming that he doesn't judge people. He's just simply saying that I don't judge by your human fleshly standards, okay? In other words, my judgment is true. Your judgment is flawed. It's fleshy. He said, I don't judge anyone the way you judge. And the reason, in fact, it's very similar. Would you look back in John 7, 24? We saw that again when he spoke to the Jewish people in 724 and he said, do not judge there. He said, by appearances. He said, but judge with right judgment. They always judged by appearances. They always judged by externals. And he was telling them to judge with a right judgment. So Jesus basically says, I do not judge superficially. You say, well, then what does he mean? Well, look back at the text in 816. He said, yet even if I do judge, and he does judge, he said, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. It's a brilliant statement there. In union with God the Father, he does what the Father wants. And the Father has given all judgment to the Son. And beloved, though he came into the world to save and not condemn, there will be many who will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking about that quote at the beginning when uh, he said that all go to heaven. No, look back in John 5. That's not what the scripture says. Do you remember these statements? Here, Jesus is the judge. He's just saying, I don't judge in a fleshy way like you. He says in 5.22 that the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the what? Son. The son is the one who judges the world. Look at John chapter 5 and verse 27. He has given him all authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Look at John 5.30. I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. In fact, he says, you probably want to see this with your eyes. Look over to John chapter 9 when, when Jesus there very clearly declares in 931, excuse me, in 939, he said, for judgment, 
I came into what? This world. And so Jesus says in John 8, 16, he says, he says, my judgment is true. My judgment is genuine. My judgment is right. And our Lord, he acts in union with his father who sent him. He came to save. But if you reject him, you will be judged by him. That's the clear teaching of scripture. So he says, the first reason my witness is authentic is my origin is true. Secondly, he says, my judgment is true, genuine and right. But thirdly, he said, my testimony is true. He said, my testimony is true. Look back at verse 17 and we're almost finished. He says, in your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. He acknowledges that. You say, does it say that? Yes, it, it says that in Deuteronomy it says in Deuteronomy chapter 17, is this on the next slide? I want to see if that's up there. It says, he, he says in Deuteronomy 17, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. You've got to have two or three witnesses. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness, obviously. In Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for a crime. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so they had to have two or three witnesses. And Jesus acknowledges that. But look what he says in verse 18. He said, I am the one who bears witness about myself. He said, he said I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. That is a magnanimous statement. In other words, he said, God the Son and God the Father are the two witnesses. The Father and the Son both bear testimony. The Father who sent me in John 5, 38 has borne witness about me. This is not the testimony of men, beloved. This is the testimony of God. I think what he's saying is, listen, my, my, I'm true. My origin is true. I don't need any other witness or evidence because I come from the Father. But if you want the witnesses according to your law, he goes, I have those. I'm bearing you testimony and my father is giving you witness. But they appear to be a little confused or mocking him. Look at verse 19. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now watch this stunning statement. Jesus said, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my what? My father also. What a profound point. Beloved, let me just say this succinctly to you. The only way to know God the Father is to know God the Son, right? To know Jesus is the only way to know God the Father. And one knows the Father as one only knows the Son. And you can only know God through the Son. And this is the testimony of Scripture in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God full stop, if you will, in the language. The only God, speaking of Christ, is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The only way that anyone can know God the Father is to know God the Son. And so this is the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in John chapter 5, in verse 23, Jesus says there, he said that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son in 523 does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, beloved, this is a real exclusive Savior we have, right? No man comes to the Father, John 14, 6, but what? Through me. 
This is the only message. This is the only gospel. This is the only savior. This is the only place of salvation. This is the only place to find light. This is the only place to find the light of the world. Remember when Jesus said in 14.7, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you know him and you have seen him. And Jesus said to Thomas in 14.9, He said, whoever has seen me has seen what? The father. Here are the two witnesses. They're right there. It's Jesus Christ and God the father. Three exchanges that reveal Jesus as the light of the world. Okay? And these three exchanges demand really a response from him. And so here's my closing question. Are you convinced of the deity of Jesus Christ? Have you believed on him who is the light of the world? Have you believed on him who is the bread of life? Have you come to him and believed in him, the one who will give you the water to drink that will well up in your heart and cause you to thirst no more? cause you to be hungry spiritually no more? Have you come to the light of Christ? Are you a follower of Christ? Listen, here it is. My origin is true. My testimony is true. He says, my judgment is true. Here's the question I have for you. Just as we close, picture this being like a a train depot. Here's the train. It's coming down the track. And the train is taking people to heaven. And you've got to get on that train. And you need a ticket to get on that train. And if you don't have a ticket, you can't get on that train that's going to take you to the celestial city. And there's only one way to get on that train. There's not different ways and different roads that lead to God. There's not different paths, okay? There's not different religions. This is the only train. It's called the gospel. It's called the good news. And you got to have a ticket. And the ticket is that you've got to put your hope and confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've got to express faith in him. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to drop down on your knee. You've got to beat your breast, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got to come on his terms. You've got to come follow him. But when you follow him, you're coming by the grace of God and he transforms your life. And as you bow your knee, as you repent, and he grants you faith and repentance, he gives you that ticket and he puts you in a seat on his train and he takes you all the way to glory. And my question for you, just every individual here, are you on that train? Are you on that train? Have you given your life in complete obedience to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world? Or are you grasping after the lust of the world, the flesh, and the lust of the eyes? Listen, that path will take you straight to hell. The only hope, the only glory is the Lord Jesus Christ who said he's the light of the world. And I'm just asking you, are you in the train right now? Are you on that track, if you will, on your way to glory? Because there's only one path to it. Amen?